It has been said by many that life is a classroom, a continual and constant learning experience. The longer you are alive, the more you learn, the wiser you become, the more experience you gain. In each new stage of life, we find ourselves needing to gain information, knowledge, and wisdom from those who have walked various paths before us. Anytime I find myself in the midst of a project in my home or on my car or really anything in which I'm regularly out of my league, I find myself running to the ultimate source of knowledge on such tasks, YouTube. I regularly run to a video streaming uh, service online called YouTube asking the question, has anyone ever recorded a video of themselves doing what I'm about to do? And no one exudes confidence like a man who has never performed a task but has seen a YouTube video of how to do it. <laughs> Normally, I come out of those videos knowing just enough to be dangerous and not nearly enough to be effective, and I still learn painful life lessons from that experience. Those lessons come to us in life one lesson at a time, often from our mistakes. But for those who are learning, for those who are wise, Eventually, those lessons develop into principles, into wisdom that helps us to navigate life. As a pastor, as a father, there are so many times where I regularly find myself wishing that I could infuse life lessons that I have learned into those that I have an opportunity to influence. Don't do what I did. Learn from this mistake. Follow this path, not that one. One of those foundational lessons of wisdom in our Bibles is that wisdom is the ability to learn from someone else's life, to take someone else's word for it, to learn lessons not just from experience, but from instruction. It's the entire book of Proverbs. Solomon instructing his son, saying, take my word for it, learn from my mistakes. This morning, my hope is that we will have the opportunity to learn an essential life lesson from the life of another man. And it's a lesson in God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is a lesson that we will all learn one day. We actually just sang about this. We sang these words, when my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day. In other words, when I'm immortal, when I'm in heaven, when I get to the point where I can look back on this life, what perspective will I have? Here's what we sang. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. In other words, the day is coming when we will be able to look back and see that God was directing our every step. That day is coming. But that lesson can be learned before that day. That lesson can be learned before we reach heaven and experience that sight for ourselves. That lesson can be learned by looking at the lives of saints who have come before us. Namely, this morning, the life of a man named Joseph. This morning, we are going to learn lessons from the life of Joseph. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37 and following, 
will be our text for this morning. We are going to take a look at the big picture of a story that actually covers 14 chapters. If you see our text on the screen this morning, we're, we're going to be covering Genesis chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50. It's a long story. It's not normally our custom to cover this much text in one sermon, but I think we'll find a unique angle that covering 14 chapters is going to give us in lessons from the life of Joseph. We're going to take a look at the big picture of this story. The story is told one scene at a time. I've been preaching this story one scene at a time for our student ministry. There's a lot of value in that, certainly, but this whole story, all 14 chapters, function together to teach us an essential life lesson. And I want us to see that lesson in the life of Joseph this morning. We don't ever get to have the big picture view of our own lives. Life hits us one scene at a time. And while we may learn lessons from each of those individual scenes, there are also lessons to be learned from the big picture of life. We don't ever get to see the whole picture of our own lives. But this morning, we're going to see the whole picture, the, the big picture of the life of Joseph. Joseph is a fascinating character in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is a book of origins. It explains where the world came from, where sin came from, where the nations came from, and ultimately the origin of the promises that God made to his chosen people, the Israelites. Now, for most of the book of Genesis, the author is, flowing, is, is focusing on the people through whom the promises in Genesis flow. So in Genesis chapter 12, we begin to focus on a man named Abraham. First, God makes a promise to Abraham that he will become a great nation, that his descendants will become innumerable, and that he will be supremely blessed. But Abraham's wife is barren. God miraculously gives him a son. His son's name is Isaac. And we focus on Isaac for a little while in Genesis. Isaac is the one through whom the promise flows, but Isaac has a wife and she is also barren. But God miraculously gives them two sons, Jacob and Esau. At that point, we begin to focus on Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. But the pattern changes a little bit when we hit the life of Jacob because in Jacob's 12 sons, there isn't just one son that is chosen for the promise to flow through. Rather, the promise that God has given to them is going to flow through each of the 12 sons. These will become the 12 tribes of Israel, the Israelites, the chosen people of God. Now, all through Genesis, we are tracking through each of these men because the promise flows through each of these individuals, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in Genesis chapter 37, where our text begins this morning, the track of Genesis changes significantly. We don't focus on all 12 of the individuals through whom the promise flows. But rather, from Genesis chapter 37 through 50, the primary focus is on one of those 12 individuals through whom the promise flows, and that is Joseph. One of the 12 sons of Jacob. But we make a mistake if we believe that Genesis 20, 37 through 50 is actually about Joseph. He's certainly the character that we focus on, but the purpose of these 14 chapters is not to focus on Joseph for the sake of Joseph, but rather to demonstrate how God works through the life of Joseph to preserve the 12 descendants of Jacob. The purpose of these 14 chapters is to show how God works through the life of Joseph to preserve all 12 of the descendants of Jacob. 
The story of Joseph is a story about God keeping his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By preserving the 12 sons so that they can become a great nation. Joseph demonstrates God's sovereignty in keeping his promises in amazing ways. Now again, this is going to be a unique approach to the text this morning. We are going to walk through these chapters and tell the story. We will finish with some implications, some walkaways from this lesson. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time just picking bits and pieces from each of these 14 chapters to just focus on the life of Joseph, to see the story of Joseph, and then we'll draw some implications and learn some of the life lessons once we catch that big picture in Genesis chapter 50. So we pick up in Genesis chapter 37, where we meet a 17-year-old boy named Joseph, who works with his brothers, shepherding flocks. A series of events placed Joseph in a bad relationship with his other brothers. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, the father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Joseph brings back a bad report about his brothers to his father. This is the first event that starts to cause Joseph to be in a bad relationship with his other brothers. He tells his father that his brothers apparently weren't doing something right, whether they were disobeying or or they were doing something wrong in their shepherding. And he goes and he essentially rats out his brothers. Keep reading. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a varicolored tunic. We read in verse 3 that, Joseph lo- that Jacob loves Joseph more than his other 11 sons. So he makes him what my Bible describes as a varicolored tunic, which you probably grew up thinking as the coat of many colors. You know what this coat looked like? What we do know is that it was a token of his father's favoritism. Really bad parenting in Genesis 37, and his brothers take notice of it. Look at verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. His brothers noticed, and they hated Joseph. They hated him could not speak kindly to him because of the things that had taken place that that just gave them a bad relationship. He had ratted his brothers out. His, His father preferred them, but there was more. Verses five through 10 describe a series of dreams that Joseph had as a 17 year old boy. And in these dreams, God reveals to Joseph that one day his brothers will bow down to him. Joseph tells his brothers about these dreams. Not a good move when they already hate you and can't speak kindly to you. Look at the end of verse 8. After Joseph tells them about these dreams, we read this. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This is just a downward spiral of hatred. They despise their brother Joseph. Well, not long after this, Joseph's brothers are shepherding some distance away from their home. And Joseph is sent by their father to check on them. 
They see Joseph coming from a distance wearing this token of their father's favoritism. They despise everything about him. Look at verse 19 of chapter 37. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They see him coming from a ways off and they begin to scheme together. They decide to kill him. They throw him in a pit and they're going to claim that a wild beast devoured him. Reuben, the oldest of the 12, kind of changes the other brothers' minds. He talks them out of that plan, but they still decide to throw him in a pit. They take his coat, they throw him in a pit, and as they are eating a meal together, a band of slave slave traders rides by them. They come up with an idea, the 10 brothers, that instead of killing him, they can make money off of him if they sell him to the slave traders. That way, they don't have blood on their hands, they turn a profit, and they get rid of Joseph. So this is their plan. And this is what they do. Look at verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. They sell their brother into slavery. They go home, they lie to their father about what happened, and they go about their lives. Genesis 37 is a dark chapter. Joseph certainly isn't innocent in Genesis 37. We we all know that. But he's just been sold into slavery. What is going on in Genesis chapter 37? This is a dark, dark scene. What is the trajectory of this chapter? Well, the last line of verse 28 is the key to this whole chapter. Look again at verse 28, the last line. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. This series of events, the hatred of his brothers, the plot to kill him, the decision to sell him, all of this works together to place Joseph in Egypt. Now, at this point in the story, we don't know why that's important, but it is. Joseph is no longer in Canaan. No longer in the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants. He is now a slave in Egypt. Well, the story picks back up. Turn over to Genesis 39. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Joseph is a slave in the house of someone who works closely to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Joseph is now in a foreign land, apart from his people, seemingly alone. But verse 2 reminds us of an important detail in this story. Look at chapter 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Even in Egypt, even when he has been betrayed, even when he is owned by another man, even when he is seemingly alone, God is with him and is at work through him. 
Because God is with Joseph, he blesses him in a unique and special way. Keep reading. Pick back up in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in, in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. It came about from that time, he made him overseer in his house over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Joseph rises to the top position in this household in the household of this powerful man, he is now overseeing all that he has and his owner trusts him completely. He places everything under Joseph's authority. Joseph is essentially the ruler of this house. But in a shocking series of events in Genesis 37, 39, it all comes crashing down. In verses seven through 18, Potiphar's wife becomes attracted to Joseph. He was a handsome man, successful, effective in all that he did, and she was attracted to that. She asks him to lie with her while her husband is away. Joseph refuses. She asks him again and again and again, day after day, and Joseph continually refuses. Eventually, she becomes more aggressive. He is alone one day working in the house. She grabs him and demands that he lie down with her. Joseph runs out of the house in such a hurry that he leaves his coat in her hands. Potiphar's wife is furious. And with his coat in her hands, she spins a lie to pay him back. She tells her husband that he came in to take advantage of her and that she screamed when she saw him and that he fled so quickly that he forgot his coat. Well, Potiphar Joseph's owner is furious with him. He immediately throws him into prison. Look at chapter 39, verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. When Joseph was sold into slavery, it was a massive injustice from his brothers. Now Joseph is in prison. Another massive injustice in which he did nothing wrong. He is exemplary in his conduct as a slave, and yet he finds himself now in an even more dismal situation. He's not just a slave, he's an imprisoned slave with no one that can come to his defense. He is in a hopeless scenario. He's in Egypt as a slave in prison. But he's not just in any prison. Because of Potiphar's position in working directly for Pharaoh, Joseph is placed in the prison that is specifically reserved for Pharaoh's prisoners. This is again a dark place in the story of Joseph's life. But once again, he's not alone. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight 
of the chief jailer. Joseph is in prison. He's in a hopeless situation. But God is still with him. God is still causing him to prosper, even in prison, causing the chief jailer to look upon Joseph with kindness and with favor. So what takes place in this scene is that the work of Joseph's hands in prison is blessed just as it was in Potiphar's house. He rises to authority even in prison. He is placed by the chief jailer in charge of all the other prisoners. Like wherever Joseph is in life, wherever he is, he rises to the top both because of his faithfulness, but most significantly because of God's presence with him. So Joseph is in a chief position, but still not in an ideal situation, still a slave in prison in Egypt. That brings us to chapter 40. In chapter 40, two of Joseph's fellow prisoners have dreams. Dreams were viewed as important revelations in this culture. The two men that Joseph is with used to work in Pharaoh's court. And in Pharaoh's court, there were individuals who were professional dream interpreters and they would interpret people's dreams for them. But these two individuals have dreams that they view as significant, but they're distraught because in prison, there is no one to interpret them. Look at verse 8 of chapter 40. Then they... The two prisoners said to him, Joseph, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. It's a bold statement by Joseph. Like, like a shockingly bold statement. He says, you've had a dream? God knows the interpretation of your dream. Tell it to me. Tell it to me, Joseph says. Joseph is confident that God has given him the ability to interpret their dreams. There's all sorts of speculation on this. We don't know how Joseph knew that God would grant him that ability, but he does, and these men trust him. They tell Joseph their dreams and Joseph interprets them. We don't have time to get into what these dreams consisted of this morning, but here was the interpretation of their dreams. Joseph says to, these, to the first man who was a cupbearer in Pharaoh's court, he says, you are going to be lifted up out of prison. You are going to be taken back before Pharaoh and you are going to be reinstated in your position as his cupbearer. But to the second man, he says, you also will be lifted out of prison you will be taken before Pharaoh and he is going to kill you. That is Joseph's interpretation of these two men's dreams. One of them will be reinstated. One of them will be hung. And what takes place shortly thereafter is that Joseph's interpretations are fulfilled. Exactly. Look at verse 21 and 22. He, Pharaoh, restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he, Pharaoh, hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. God gave Joseph the interpretation. 
because Joseph knew that the cupbearer was going to be restored to his position, Joseph gave the cupbearer a very important request before he was restated back into his position before Pharaoh. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 40. Joseph requests this of the cupbearer. He says, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. Joseph says, get me out of here. When you have your freedom, be an advocate for me on the outside. But after the cupbearer is restored, look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That brings us to chapter 41. The first words of chapter 41 are key. Now, it happened at the end of two full years. Stop there. We fast forward in this story, two full years, meaning Joseph sees this cupbearer reinstated into Pharaoh's court. He says, remember me. The cupbearer forgets. Seemingly, Joseph is waiting. Any moment, they will come and release me. And for two years, nothing happens. For two years, he waits in prison. But in chapter 41... While Joseph is still in prison, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Like in the previous story, he looks for someone to interpret it. Look at chapter 41, verse 8. Now in the morning, his, Pharaoh's, spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams and there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. When no one could interpret it, the cupbearer whose dream Joseph interpreted after two years remembers Joseph. He tells Pharaoh about him. Pharaoh has nothing to lose. After more than two years in prison, Joseph is brought out of prison and placed in Pharaoh's court. And just like Joseph had told the two men in prison, he tells Pharaoh in verse 16, Joseph answers Pharaoh saying, it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pharaoh says, can you interpret my dream? Joseph's response is not of my own power, but God through me can give you a favorable answer. Pharaoh tells the dream and Joseph interprets it. The interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is this. Immediately there are coming seven years of plenty that will be followed by seven years of famine upon the whole land. The seven years of famine that are coming after seven years of plenty will be so severe, so catastrophic that it will be as if the seven years of plenty never happened. A famine like this will bring the entire land to extinction unless they plan accordingly. So Joseph recommends to Pharaoh that he put someone wise and discerning in charge of storing away 20% of the national production of grain during the seven years of plenty so that they can be ready for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh responds to Joseph's recommendation in chapter 41, verses 38 through 44. Chapter 41, we're picking up in verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, 
can we find a man like this? In whom there is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You, Joseph, prisoner, slave, foreigner, you, Joseph, shall be over my house. And according to your command, all of my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Just like that. Joseph goes from, bring, from being a wrongly imprisoned, wrongly enslaved foreigner to the second most powerful person in all of Egypt riding around in Pharaoh's chariot with the nation of Egypt bowing down to him with Pharaoh telling him, no one in this entire land can lift a finger without your permission. Now at this point in Joseph's life, it has been 13 years. 13 years since his brothers sold him into slavery and his life has been a steadily downhill trajectory. But it's starting to become apparent that God has plans for Joseph in Egypt. Brings us to chapter 42. As we transition into chapter 42, we fast forward nine more years. We move from Egypt in chapter 42 back to Canaan, where Joseph's father and 11 brothers still live. The seven years of plenty have come and gone, and at this point in the story, we are two years into the famine that dominates the land. Two years in to this devastating famine, Joseph was ready for it, but anyone not associated with Joseph would have never seen it coming. And so in Genesis chapter 42, as we focus back on Joseph's father and his brothers, they find themselves with no food and no idea when this famine is going to end. The word is spread that Egypt has grain, so Jacob says to his sons, look at 42, verse 2, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. He sends all of his sons except for Benjamin for fear that Benjamin might die. These 10 brothers head for Egypt. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces on the ground. Joseph's brothers 
are bowing before him, begging for bread, unknowingly at the feet of their younger brother whom they sold into slavery. Look at verse 7. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and he spoke harshly and he said, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. Joseph recognizes his brothers. He sees them bowing down before him and his mind goes to 22 years earlier when he had had a dream revealed to him from God that one day his brothers would bow down to him. And Joseph is probably starting to catch a glimpse, whether he knew it before or not, that God is in control. Joseph is thinking, years ago when God gave me that dream, he had all of this in mind. But the scene is not actually fully complete. The dream that God had given Joseph 22 years prior was that all 11 of his brothers would bow down before him. And in this scene, there are only 10. Benjamin was left at home. So Joseph devises a plan to get Benjamin into Egypt. It's kind of an ironic plan. He accuses his brothers of being spies in the land. He holds one of them hostage, throws one of them into prison, unless his brothers can prove who they are by bringing back Benjamin, Joseph's youngest brother. Look at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 42. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in a prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine for your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. That takes us into chapter 43. The brothers return home. They tell their father what happened. They stay with Jacob until they run out of grain. Jacob knows eventually that he's going to have to send his sons back to Egypt. So he reluctantly lets Benjamin go with them. They return to Egypt, a trip that would have taken several weeks. And we pick back up in chapter 43, verse 16. Chapter 43, verse 16. The brothers are now returning to Egypt. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for these men are to dine with me at noon. Joseph hosts a feast in his own home for his 11 brothers. He hosts a feast. Pick up in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and they bowed down to the ground before him. Then he, Joseph, asked them about their welfare and said, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they, all 11, bowed down in homage. There it is. 
all 11 of Joseph's brothers bowing down before Joseph. Joseph's at, Joseph asks about their father. He asks about his father. Look at verse 29. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Joseph is overwhelmed with emotions. He can't control himself. He leaves the room. Later, he comes back, and he dines with his brothers, that brings us into chapter 44. Joseph, at this point, while dining with his brothers, gives them more grain. He puts the money that they paid him for the grain back in all of their sacks. He also places a silver cup from his home into the sack of Benjamin. The brothers leave. As soon as they do, Joseph sends his servant after them and tells him to accuse them of stealing the cup that he had just placed in Benjamin's sack. He tells his servant to go and accuse them of stealing it from his home. So that's what the servant does. The 11 brothers deny it. They say, if we stole that cup, you can kill whoever stole it, and the rest of us will be your slaves. Look at verse 12. Chapter 44, verse 12. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They're horrified. Understandably so. They tell Joseph that they will be his slaves. Joseph tells 10 of them that they can leave and that only Benjamin must stay. Judah comes to Joseph and pleads with him, saying that if they return without Benjamin, it will kill their father. And it's at this point that Joseph cannot control himself anymore. Look at chapter 45, verses 1 through 4. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him and he cried have everyone go out from me so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it then Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph is my father still alive but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Wow. They talk, they embrace, they probably ask questions about how he attained to this peculiar position. Joseph sends them back to their father. 
Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You will live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. His brothers go back home. They tell Jacob that Joseph is still alive. Jacob eventually believes them. They pack up with their wives and their children, 70 people in all, and they travel to Egypt. Chapter 46 summarizes all of the children of Israel that came to Egypt. There were 70 of them in total. Look at chapter 46, verse 29. When they finally arrived in Egypt, Joseph prepared his chariots and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. Now I can die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. What a moment. In chapter 47, we are told of the two results of this famine. The Egyptian people are desperate for food, and so they sell their land, their property, and their own services to Joseph, to Pharaoh, in return for grain. The Egyptians have lost everything because of this famine, but simultaneously, as the people of Egypt have lost everything as they have given up all that they have just to survive, we read this in chapter 47, verse 27. Now Israel, that is Jacob, he lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they, his people, acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. While everyone else in Egypt is suffering, Jacob and his family are acquiring land, becoming prosperous, and growing as a people. The end result of these events is that they become what verse 29 describes as very numerous. Let me say it this way. In the face of this famine, while everyone else is giving up everything, they are becoming a great nation. The story ends with Jacob on his deathbed after living in Egypt for 17 years. In chapter 48, he blesses all of his, uh, he blesses Joseph's sons. In chapter 49, he blesses his 12 sons. And then Jacob dies. In chapter 50, they bury him. And once they have buried their father, Joseph's brothers get worried again that Joseph might seek revenge for what they did to him now that their father is dead. So they go to Joseph and they beg for forgiveness. Look at chapter 50, verses 17 through 21. They say this, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
Then his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's the story of the life of Joseph. It is filled with instruction for us. We're going to close our time this morning with four lessons from the life of Joseph. Four lessons from the life of Joseph. We're going to move through these quickly. The bulk of our work is behind us. Four lessons from the life of Joseph. Number one, the sovereign God is at work in everything. The sovereign God is at work in everything. This is the most central lesson at the heart of the life of Joseph. There's so many things that happen in this story. It's not until the end. It's not really until chapter 50 that we get the full picture and we realize that it was all working together exactly how God intended it. Exactly how God intended it. Turn back to chapter 45. We're going to be bouncing back and forth between chapter 45 and chapter 50 for a few minutes where these lessons are most clearly seen. Chapter 45, verse 5, when Joseph has just revealed his identity to his brothers. Chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph says this, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Look also at verse 8 of chapter 45. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a, fa a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over the land of Egypt. Joseph's brothers sinned against him. They sold him into the ownership of others who delivered him to Egypt. And yet, Joseph says to them, you didn't send me here. You're not the one who put me here. God was. They certainly were involved in sending him. It was their actions, but there was a bigger mover behind their actions. There was a bigger plan behind theirs. Joseph says everything that took place was all part of God's plan. Everything. God is sovereignly at work in every element. Of Joseph's life. This is evident in every chapter that we've just covered. When Joseph's father is showing him sinful favoritism, God is bringing him to Egypt. When Joseph's brothers hate him, God is working to bring him to Egypt. When they want to kill him, God is bringing him to Egypt. When they throw him in a pit, when they sell him into slavery, God is bringing him to Egypt. As Joseph is watching his brothers count out 20 pieces of silver for his life, God is bringing him to Egypt. 
When Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's household, God is bringing him to prison. When Joseph is wrongly accused of something that he never did, God is bringing him to prison. When Joseph is in prison and he's interpreting the dreams of other individuals, God is bringing him to Pharaoh's court. When Joseph is forgotten for two years, God is bringing him into Pharaoh's court. Every single detail, God is placing Joseph exactly where he wants him. This story presses our theology of God's sovereignty to the utmost end. Do you believe? Do you really believe that God is sovereign? Even in dangerous circumstances, like a famine, like a pandemic, even in painful circumstances, like being wrongly accused, even in sin, like someone selling you into slavery. God is not reacting to the sin of Joseph's brothers. He's not reacting. He is actively at work through them. They were sinning, it's true. But God was sending Joseph exactly where he wanted him. Sometimes we can think about God's sovereignty as if in his sovereignty, God finds a way to work around the bad things that happen in life. As if God can get really creative and find a way to make bad things work out. That's not what Joseph teaches. He doesn't say, God found a way to work through the fact that you sent me to Egypt. That's not what he says. He says, God was the sender. God sent me to Egypt. He was actively at work. The sovereign God is at work in everything. A second lesson from the life of Joseph. The sovereign God is at work for the good of his people. The sovereign God is at work in everything, yes, but also for the good of his people. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you remember these words. Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. When Joseph's brothers had sinful intentions, God was at work to accomplish a good thing. Despite their evil intentions, God intended those events for good. What was that good? Turn back to Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. What was the good thing that God intended? Here it is. Verse 20 in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. God's intention in all of this was not just to put Joseph in a position of authority. God's intention in all of this was to preserve life, to preserve many people alive, to preserve his people, the 12 sons of Jacob. I told you we'd be bouncing around. Let's see this again in chapter 45. 
chapter 45, look at verses five through seven. Chapter 45, verses five through seven, we read this now. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. Do not be grieved. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. Why? To preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. God sent me here to keep you alive, to keep his people alive, to deliver you in a great way. Do you believe that no matter what happens, God is at work for the good of his people? The good of his people. Even if people are are sinning against you, like we see in Genesis, put yourself in the shoes of Joseph. And these are the conclusions that this, this story tells us to draw. Have you been sinned against? It's for your good. It almost sounds wrong, doesn't it? It's what this story teaches. Have you been sinned against? All things are working together for the good of God's people. It is for your good. Has there been injustice committed against you? It's for your good. Have you been betrayed, let down, disappointed, abandoned? It's for your good. Others may have meant it for evil, but God is at work for good for his people. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, God is working all things together for good for those who love the Lord. Now this demands a brief caveat. The only ones who can rest assured that God is at work for their good are those who love the Lord, those who are genuine believers. If you have not repented and placed your faith in Christ who gave his life to atone for your sin, that you might have a relationship with him, if that's not you, then you can cling to no such promises. You have no such assurance that all things are working together for the good of those who love the Lord. That while others may mean it for evil, God meant it for good for you, for his people. What I love about the Joseph story is that we get to see how God was at work for their good. Let's be clear. It's important for us to remember that we don't always get the Joseph perspective in our lives. We don't always get to see the whole story, the big picture in our lifetime. Joseph didn't understand this for for 22 years. He didn't understand when he was being sold or when he was a slave or when he was in prison or even when he was interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. He didn't see what God was doing until the very end. And we need to be aware that sometimes we never see it. Sometimes God is doing things for our good that are beyond our ability to see. You may never see what God's end goal is, but rest assured, here is our confidence. It is for your good. I'll put a quote up on the screen. Jerry Bridges said it this way. From our limited vantage point, our lives are marked by an endless series of contingencies. We frequently find ourselves, instead of acting as we planned, reacting to an unexpected turn of events, but there are no contingencies with God. 
Our unexpected forced change of plans is a part of his plan. God is never surprised, never caught off guard, never frustrated by unexpected developments. God does as he pleases, and that which he pleases is always for his glory and our good. That quote so accurately welds those first two points that we have drawn. He's not surprised. He's at work in everything, and it is all working together, all of it, for his glory and for your good, if you are his child. That brings us to a third lesson, a third lesson. Number three, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Do you know why God is preserving the lives of these 12 brothers? Because he made a promise to their great-grandfather that his descendants would become a great nation. That promise flowed through Isaac to Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons. In keeping these 12 sons alive, God is keeping his promises. And if there is one lesson from the book of Genesis as a whole, it's this, that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. The Joseph narrative shows us that even the most tragic circumstances, God never abandons his promises. What he says, he does every time. He will not break his word. Because that's true, we need to rest in every word that he speaks. We need to know our Bibles where his promises are given to us. Finally, one more, a fourth lesson from the life of Joseph. The sovereign God is worthy of our complete trust. This fourth takeaway flows from those other three conclusions. Because God is sovereign in everything, because he is at work for our good, because he always keeps his promises, he's worthy of our complete trust. Do you trust God? In every circumstance, no matter how difficult, how painful, how discomforting, how broken, how dismal, he's in control. He's in control. And he's working that control in such a way that it is for the good of his people. If that is true, then the ultimate application is that we can trust him in everything. Christians interpret the facts of life differently than anyone else. Our understanding of the world and all that occurs in it is foundationally different than the perception of anyone else because we know that we serve a God that's in control. The day is coming when we will see that clearly in heaven. But the lesson from the life of Joseph is to recognize that now and live in light of it, trusting our sovereign God.